It's actually me today. Greetings across whatever it is you listen to MP3s on these days. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. Hi, I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film composer and accompanist, historian, educator, programmer, DVD label, and podcaster, although you wouldn't know it from the frequency of episodes. Yes, this is episode 32, recording and posting during the third week of May 2019. Only took me five months to point my brains at doing another episode. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for finding the podcast. Uh, I've managed to finally incorporate it it into my main website as part of my blog. So hopefully more and more people will find the podcast. If you have come up to me at a show and said, I like the podcast, Thank you. It's uh, the most, mostly the feedback I get are people talking to me at shows. Um, emails are fine too. If you want to send me a tweet or whatever, it's great. I, I'm doing this um, to share what I know and hopefully um, spread some of the information about how this all happens. I want to thank you if you bought me a cup of coffee on Kofi.com. That's K O hyphen That's right. If you go to ko-fi.com slash Ben Modell, you can buy me a cup of coffee if you click on the right thing. Um, it's uh, They're not a sponsor. I just like coffee. So check it out. I've uh, done a lot of shows in the last five months. Taught an entire semester's uh, class at Wesleyan. And... Uh, on this episode, uh, we'll recap some of the highlights of those things, talk a little bit about meeting an audience's expectations of film music for a particular genre or setting of a kind of film, uh, talk about how a comedy short often has a moment in the first few minutes that gives the audience, especially a newbie audience, permission to enjoy themselves at a silent film show. And we'll talk about scoring something that was found recently from around the turn of the last century and has a special content and again uh, how I found a way to meet audiences expectations without getting in the way and then at the end we'll talk a little bit about what's coming up in the first five months of 2019 many things happened uh, I did my annual trip to Boise, and we'll hear some of the organ music from that. Uh, was at the TCM Classic Film Festival, playing for a couple of Tom Mix films, one uh, newly restored, both lots and lots of fun. Um, released the Alice Howell Collection DVD, which is not only selling well, it is continuing to, and Reviews are still dribbling in here and there. People are really enjoying Alice Howell's comedy. Uh, so do check that out. 
Uh, I've been at the Library of Congress a couple of times. I was at the Kansas Silent Film Festival where I got to give my undercranking talk at their cinema dinner as well as a company one night. It was in Flower. I did a show in Bedford, New York in a newly restored old movie theater there. Uh, had something interesting happen to me in Nebraska. Uh, I did a couple of shows, uh, a show in in Beatrice, Nebraska, uh, part of a weekend of Harold Lloyd films uh, uh, sponsored uh, by the Gage County Historical Society and largely through the planning expertise and uh, organizing uh, wonderments of Janelle Cleveland. But Harold Lloyd is from Bertrand, Nebraska. He was in, he's actually from many parts of Nebraska. His family kept moving. But the Harold, little Harold Lloyd Museum, which is in the house he lived in when he was born in Bertrand, Nebraska. A whole bunch of us were gathered there. And someone gave a little slideshow and they talked about Harold Lloyd. And they said, now we're going to watch a Harold Lloyd film. They fired up the DVD player and projector and started a film and I didn't hear anything and I said um, is there a score on this and uh, the person presenting said no I don't think there's any music on this and well you and I know that all DVDs even the ones from Alpha Video have some kind of music on them and I said I'm pretty sure there's a score on this because it started up and it was um, Billy Blaze's Esquire and uh, I was told, well, we don't have speakers hooked up. We didn't, I don't have anything set. And the film begins, and it kind of sat there, as silent comedies do in dead silence. And uh, having a similar impulse to the one I had when I started playing for films, I thought, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. There's got to be something I can do that's better than nothing. And I remembered that on my phone, I have both the LPs that Arthur Kleiner recorded in 1967, Music for Silent Comedies and Musical Moods for the Silent Films. And I whipped out my iPhone, opened uh, the music app, and found those albums and basically scored the film doing uh, digital needle drops uh, from those the, about four or five of the tracks from those albums. And all of a sudden, the film came to life. People were laughing. And after a couple of minutes, I realized that if I wanted to switch cues, if there was a big laugh, no one would hear the jump. And I, I did that. And the film went over really, really well. And Harold Lloyd got to entertain people in his own living room from where he was born. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's, there was just a fun little moment that, and if, if you, uh, if you ever watch the, the the show that Herb Graf and Walter Kerr and uh, William K. Everson did on public television in the 1970s, uh, running obscure comedy shorts, you know those three or four cuts from that record over and over and over and over. Um, what you heard at the top of the episode is something that happens from time to time, uh, mostly with DVDs and DCPs, in that... There will be a music credit for whoever's score is on the DCP, DVD, or Blu-ray. And what you heard uh, was a live performance recording from the Silent Clowns film series in March of this year, where we ran a 16mm print from the collection of the Library for the Performing Arts. And 
At the head of it is a music credit for the original score by Mortimer Wilson, as performed on piano by Paul Norman. And this happens a lot with it. With, it happened in our show, and uh, I please, if you're an accompanist, unless it's a bunch of friends, don't do what I did. Uh, I can get away with that in that particular setting because I am basically playing at that series because I produce it month after month, year after year for 20 years, and the people in the theater, they know me. So if I, I, I can do an aside like that, and they get it, and it's fun, and they forget about it. Uh, if it was MoMA, I would never do that. Anywhere else, I would never do that. Um, maybe for my Wesleyan students, if something comes up, because we have this rapport already going, I can turn to them and say you know, something, whatever. But it is a thing that happens uh, where there'll be a musical uh, score credit as well as a crawl of who's on viola, who's on uh, oboe, who's the bassoon player is. Um, and it's what's interesting I found is that even if I tell people at the top of the show there's going to be a score credit, ignore it. Just think, just it's me. And uh, during the Q&A, people will ask me about, you know, the uh, learning Carl Davis's score or Robert Israel's music for this. And I have to remind them that. So um, it, it is it is a it, it would be great if there were two sets of DCPs that would get sent out for a show, one with no track and no credits. Um, but uh, it's not always possible. I. I have two separate DCPs for one night it was in flower that I sent out. Uh, and it's something that I think is important uh, that we have, e- even if the DCP or Blu-ray has a track on it, you should hire a musician to play at the show. There's just something more present and real about this. And I posted on my blog about the experience of silent film uh, recently that kind of resonated with a bunch of people. With Thief of Baghdad, you have to uh, keep in mind as you prepare and play, I think, uh, what the audience is expecting musically. And that, you know, culturally, this is this keeps changing uh, these days. Uh, trying to be authentic and respectful of the culture while also acknowledging that, well, this this is a movie that was made 90 years ago by people who were alive 90 years ago and were present in what culture was at the time 90 years ago. So do how far do you go to playing authentic Middle Eastern music um, or something that sounds like it without getting too cartoony at the same time that Doug Fairbanks' Thief of Baghdad is a really... You know, it's a 1920s fantasy version of whatever people understood at the time of Middle Eastern culture. Uh, so it, that does buy you a little leeway. Um, the you know the Carl Davis score uh, for Thief of Baghdad that's on the DCP and on Blu-rays has quite a bit of Shahrazad in it. And it's something I uh, I don't like. I don't like to use recognizable music. And, uh, yeah, maybe a lot of people aren't super familiar with Scheherazade, but some are. I I did a show of The Adventures of Prince Ahmed 
a few months ago, and during the Q&A, somebody in the audience said, hey, you know, I caught Thief of Baghdad on TCM, and I noticed the score had a lot of Scheherazade in it. And anytime you have a music that's sort of waving at the audience uh, out of the corner of the frame, uh, it, it, it's, it is a distraction. So that's, I mean, it is one way to go. I would imagine that in the 20s, uh, local orchestras may have cribbed a great deal of, of Scheherazade into their scores. There are two other rec- recorded scores you can try to find just to hear other examples. Uh, I don't know if it was recorded for video, but there is an LP that Gaylord Carter recorded with some of his themes from Thief of Baghdad, and you get to hear that sound, which is a much uh, more full and uh, brassy and lush and typical theater organ sound, uh, especially the opening of the film. And Lee Irwin's uh, score, also by someone who was a theater organist in the 1920s, uh, his score and the themes from it are also on an LP that he Lee recorded for Angel Records. And if you can find the VHS of the Killiam edition of Thief of Baghdad, it's got Lee's track on it as well. And Lee's score is much, much more subtle, subdue, subdued, romantic uh, kind of a, an orchestral score. Interestingly enough, some years ago when I was for the heck of it, searching on YouTube for anything with Lee Irwin, mainly hoping I'd find some kinescope of his time on the Arthur Godfrey show, I found a rap record by Nas uh, uh, called Represent from the album Illmatic, which samples a four-bar riff that is at the top of one of the themes that Lee composed and recorded <laughs> for Thief of Baghdad. Uh, I found that fascinating uh, that uh, you associate rappers and and DJs uh, sampling things from R&B and rock music, pop music, but not Lee Irwin's theater organ score for Thief of Baghdad. I'll look it up on YouTube. It's uh, If I can remember, I'll put it in the show notes. But, you know, this this is a thing you want to uh, be mindful of so that people can feel like they're in the milieu, if I may use that word on television, of the film and then forget about the music without uh, having some uh, other reaction tugging at their sleeve here and there. Now, with comedy, moving on to comedy shorts, with a new audience, you want to run something that is not only a crowd pleaser, but something that has a moment, as some of them do, where about two minutes in, there's a big laugh where even 11th graders who have their arms folded and are just too uh, cool or wasted uh, to find this amusing uh, will actually laugh out loud. And it gives them permission to laugh at this film the rest for the rest of the two reels. In The Immigrant with Charlie Chaplin, it's sometimes it's the moment when he's leaning over the railing, uh, appearing to vomit. But really, uh, if you're doing a show of the immigrant and when uh, the uh, heavyset woman, played by Henry Bergman in a dress, slides back and forth across the uh, the floor, if the audience doesn't bust out laughing, uh, you're in tr- you're in trouble. Um, uh, th- I mean, there's you know that usually gets them and. 
what I one of the reasons I like to show uh, Keaton's one week uh, is it's not only because it's so inventive and it's got so many big belly laughs in it, but it has that moment in it. And what I'm going to do now is play for you a live performance recording uh, of me on uh, the Robert Morton Theater Organ in Boise, Idaho's Egyptian Theater for about uh, 700 sixth graders. And you'll hear that big first laugh, which is when Buster is straddling the two uh, running boards of those two cars and gets hit by a motorcycle. And then I'll continue on for the next few minutes of music. So here, live in performance from February 2019, yours truly in Boise, Idaho, accompanying Buster Keaton's One Week. Listen for that big first laugh.
live in performance at the historic 1927 Egyptian Theater in Boise, Idaho. Yours truly playing half of the original installation Robert Morton Theater Pipe Organ. I say half because basically only the house right chamber pipes are speaking at this moment. I think there's uh, one, I think a flute rank from the house left chambers, uh, but because of water damage several years ago, uh, most of the pipes on the left side of the house are not speaking. And hopefully someday repairs will happen. Uh, it's a great instrument and a great, great theater. It's a real treat for me to get to go back there every year. I've done this so many years, it occurred to me recently that because we've almost always, almost every year, done the school groups doing one or two, or initially when we started doing the school groups, we had three packed houses of kids in there. Um, so that means every year, about 14, 15, 13, 1400 sixth graders get to see a silent comedy film or two in a historic movie palace with live musical accompaniment on a theater organ. And while I don't always get to play the big high-profile festivals and do high-profile things or whatever, uh, there is a population of several thousand young people in southern Idaho who have experienced silent film as it's meant to be. It's fun. <laughs> the next thing I wanted to talk about and demonstrate with a performance clip is something I got to play for at MoMA during their To Save and Project Festival of Film Preservation at the beginning of this year. Um, one program in particular... Uh, the Orphan Film Program uh, presented some interesting challenges. Some of the films were actual actuality footage. There was one uh, piece of film of Albert Einstein and his wife in front of a rear screen in a sitting in a prop car pretending to be driving different places and the footage behind them would go from, you know, I forget it, a zoo to Niagara Falls to uh, the bustling metropolis of a city and so, uh, interesting challenges. Not, nothing really happens in the film, but I made notes to myself on what happens just before the background shot changed so I would be able to uh, transition into the next mood. Whether, whether uh, E equals MC squared himself uh, knew that the background had changed or not. I mean, we as an audience saw a difference. Uh the other thing that was an interesting challenge, it's a film I, I had been aware of uh, two years ago when I was in California and had a little extra time. I went over to visit my friend Dino Everett, who's the head of the USC Hugh M. Hefner Moving Picture Archive, Motion Picture Archive. I get the two. I'll, I'll look it up. I'm sure I'm wrong. Um but I wanted to visit. I've known Dino for years, and he does. Uh, he did all the film scanning for the accidentally preserved projects, uh, 
and there's a short documentary on YouTube, about nine minutes long, that I did of him uh, explaining and operating 28 millimeter projectors. But anyway, he had just turned up some film, uh, which has since been preserved and uh, identified, but. Uh, he held up the roll of nitrate and uns un unspooled a little bit so I could see the images. But it what it turned out to be is an, a film made in 1898 and was identified uh, as being called Something Good-Negro Kiss. And it was meant as another version of the infamous... Uh, Edison Kiss film that we've all seen in film school a hundred million times. It features two African-American performers and it's about 19 seconds long. And what was going to be shown, I was told, was a print that had the film repeated three times. And I was also sent a piece of sheet music uh, called That Creole Gal of Mine, which had was composed by one of the performers that you see on screen in the film, uh, named Saint Subtle, as a, you know, an option if I wanted to use it. What's really nice about the film is that the, the couple on screen who kiss four times, uh, they're not doing anything as what we would call stereotypical or Anything like that. They're not made up in a, in a sort of theatrical way. Uh, uh, it's a very charming and honest uh, little 19 seconds uh, moment on film. And so I rolled this around in my brain and what... I wound up doing is uh, because I wanted the audience who was seeing this for the first time ever and because it was so short and I, I just wanted them to see the film and not do anything that would make them have any kind of impression or do anything that would take them out of the moment I find that ragtime music not stride piano, but ragtime. You know, turn of the last century, ragtime um, is uh, it's very energetically busy. Uh, it sounds like what silent film or silent comedy film looks like, but often it doesn't really uh, complement silent film. It can absolutely work when used. Uh, delicately and used the right way and I didn't want to play for well at least the first time through I did not want the audience to be distracted by the musical energy that is in ragtime and I also wanted to be careful about something I've seen I haven't seen it in a long time but you know uh, maybe 10 15 20 years ago back when I was I was starting out doing this I would Notice that accompanists would play ragtime when an African-American performer would show up in a scene, whether it was somebody who was actually an African-American person or if it was somebody portraying one. And it seemed, I, I just wanted to 
in case anybody in the audience had an association with that, I, I didn't want to open with something that would make anyone go, oh, there they go again. So uh, I just held back real real simply. Uh, and then for the second time through, uh, again, it's a 19-second film, and they're only seeing it now for the second time ever. I found, I leaned in a little bit more thematically, uh, but I still tried to stay out of the way. And then for the third iteration, I played the piece of of, uh, of music that was sent to me uh, in in what I guess Scott Joplin would refer to as a slow drag tempo. Uh, and by the third time, you're, you've seen it. It is one action repeated three or four times within the body of the film, and we're all pretty familiar with what it is, and I thought that at that point it seemed right. And I actually left myself open before we the lights went down to the idea that, you know, uh, I may sense in my gut, just as we're leading into that third uh, time through the film, that this is wrong. Don't do it. Or, boy, what a great idea. But I left myself open to uh, the, the the fact that I was... I gave myself the option that, okay, I'm not... If this just... If in my gut it feels wrong, even two bars in, I will move out. But it wound up being fine, and there's a, a sweetness to it that I think works. I wrote about this in a blog post, and I'll put the link to it in the show notes. But, of course, I couldn't show the track and the film here. So what I'm going to play for you now is... Um, the music I played over the introductory titles, and then you'll hear the three times through, and you'll hear the ragtime music uh, on the third, on the third time through. And in in the blog post, which you can find linked in the show notes, the blog post has a link. Actually, I think it has the film embedded um, from the official USC Hefner archive posting of it. Here from. Titus II Auditorium in MoMA in New York City in January of 2019. Here is me accompanying Something Good from 1898.
recorded live in performance at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City during a program of Orphan Films included uh, on a program during MoMA's annual To Save and Project Festival of Film Preservation. Got a lot of things coming up. If you're not on my email list, get on my email list so you'll find out where I'm at. I know I need to be a little bit better and more frequent about sending out emails. A friend of mine I saw at an event introduced me to her girlfriend and said, Oh, this is Ben Modell. He's a silent film accompanist and he's terrible about letting you know when his shows are. <laughs> so I thought every time I think of doing it, an, e- an email uh, send out, I'm like, oh, I really got to get better at this. But highlights of what's coming up. Uh, well, Mostly Lost is coming up. Mostly Lost number eight in the Library of Congress, Packard Preservation Campus. And I'll be going down a couple days early to help set up. I'll be one of the three accompanists playing for the silent films as we identify them, uh, along with uh, Andrew Simpson and Philip Carley. One of the nice things that's happened through my Undercrank Productions DVD label is that I came up with a way that the films that get identified could help generate a little income to help with the the workshop each year or every couple of years, depending on what the royalties are like. Every year, the uh, participants of Mostly Lost are sent a survey and we're asked to pick our top three or four films that were identified from a list that were sent uh, for the Treasures of Mostly Lost 5 or 6 or 7 uh, DVD that will be handed out in the swag bag at the following year's Mostly Lost workshop. And I thought that combining the films from these DVDs, because each one is only maybe 30 minutes long, it's three or four short films, uh, would add up into a whole DVD, which uh, I released volume one of something called Found at Mostly Lost a few years ago. And in the fall of 2018, I released Found at Mostly Lost volume two, which features all the films that were uh, identified and were selected for the swag bag DVDs as highlights of Mostly Lost 4, 5, and 6. Now, my idea for this always was that this release of a DVD, you know, on Amazon, commercially elsewhere, would be a way to help promote uh, the Mostly Lost workshop and let people know what's going on and see the films we've discovered, and that the royalties would not go to me, but would instead go toward helping pay for something at one of the Mostly Lost workshops. So there was one year all the refreshments were quote-unquote sponsored by Undercrank, but it was really from royalties of sales, the DVD. And Found It Mostly Lost Volume 2 has done well in its release so far. We've sold a few hundred units. And so this year, something at Mostly Lost 8 will be covered by royalties from these DVDs. Uh, The shuttle that is taking people from the hotel up to Packard Campus and back uh, is covered uh, thanks to royalties from Found It Mostly Lost Volume 2. 
and it's not just something that Undercrank Productions has done, but it's because of the participation of mostly lost attendees uh, at mostly lost four, five, and six, helping identify films, helping select uh, the films that wound up on those other DVDs. In in a sense, they, they everybody as a group wound up uh, inadvertently uh, crowd programming volume the volume two DVD, and so. It's nice that something like that can sort of circle back around and pay it forward to itself. Uh, I may be doing another Kickstarter. I'm probably going to do another Kickstarter. Uh, I'm just sort of coming up for air after the first third of this year with a lot of travel and performing. Uh, My summer is a little slower, and that's usually when I have the mental space to do another Kickstarter. Again, if you're on my email list, you will hear about whatever the Kickstarter is, if indeed it happens. I'll be playing at uh, a historic 1914 theater called the Park Theater in Glens Falls, New York. It's near Saratoga Springs. I'll be at the Central Pennsylvania Festival of the Arts. I'll be at a historic movie theater up in Scroon Lake. And also, I will be playing at the Ambler Theater in July for... Morneau's Sunrise, and we're doing something that I was able to do, I think, two years ago at the Cinema Arts Center, which is to book the print, not the DCP, thank you very much, but the print of Sunrise and run the film at 27 frames per second or 100 feet a minute. When I was in the early stages of doing my undercranking research, I was in touch with Kevin Brownlow, and he sent me a clipping he had found in his research, an article in Variety in which Murnau uh, was outraged that his film was being shown at 90 feet a minute, or 24 frames per second with the recorded track, uh, and wired William Fox, insisting it be run at 100 feet a minute. And it was explained to him, well, with the track on it, you, you can't run it faster, It'll sound funny, um, but what I took away from this is that Morneau expected the film to be run at 100 feet a minute when he was making it. I'm sure that the idea of releasing it with a recorded musical and effects track uh, was not part of what he was thinking when he was making the film. Um, they were running film terribly fast in Germany, as Kevin Brownlow has told me, and the first page of the conductor score for the original score for Metropolis says 28 slash 29 frames per second. So, and, and even in, in the U.S., uh, uh, films by that point, and 100 feet a minute was not an unusual speed to see a film run at. And what is really interesting in watching the film with an audience at that frame rate is that it does actually work a little bit better. Uh, there are some shots that formerly seemed a little sluggish that feel, I don't know, they just seem right. Uh, and some of the really frenetic big city stuff is even slightly more so. There are about six or seven spots in the film where you really notice it. But uh, the when I did the show at the Cinema Arts Center two years ago, uh, there were a bunch of us who had knew the film really well, and we all agreed uh, that the film works even better at the speed more now wanted it shown at. So if you come to the Ambler Theater 
We'll be running the film in 35mm. I'll be accompanying it on my portable digital theater organ. And uh, Jesse Crooks, East Projectionist, who works there, has has uh, created a setting on their projectors so that we'll be running it at the speed Myrna wanted you to see it at. Uh, I'll be at uh, Capital Fest in, in August. I've never gone, and ironically, I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe I'll go this year. Uh, the last two years, I've sent DVDs and they've sold, but I thought, you know, I should co- start going to some of these things where it's not going across the country and uh, a little bit more affordable. And as I was formulating these plans in my brain, I was contacted by the festival by Art Pierce and asked me to play for a couple things. So I will be at Capital Fest in Rome, New York. Uh, they haven't announced all the fil- titles yet, so I'm not going to tell you what I'm playing for. You'll have to, uh, you'll just have to wait and see. Uh, I'm, I'll have to record a score for Little Old New York with Marion Davies. That was kickstarted by Edward LaRusso, um, and he's and part of the project was that I would score it. So I, uh, we've got uh, the film has been scanned and grading is being worked on, but I've got a preliminary uh, screener and I got to get going on that. There's another recording project I'm working on, but hasn't been announced yet. So I, uh, I'm not at liberty to divulge what I'm scoring. There's probably other shows and projects I should be telling you about. It's not coming to mind right now, but I want to thank you for listening This has been the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell, and I thank you so much for listening. Thank you for subscribing, for sharing, and for coming up to me at shows and telling me you like the podcast. Remember, folks... As it is the case with this podcast or anything to do with classic film or silent film, there is no such thing anymore as saying, why wasn't this advertised more? There is no such thing. It's up to us fans to share things. Don't just like it. If you if you do social media, if you like something, it doesn't go any farther. And you're, you're just satisfied with, oh yeah, I like that. But... If you share and re or retweet things that you see that are important, that are like anything about a show, whether it's about to happen or it's already happened, then you become part of the ripple effect and your retweet gets retweeted, etc., etc. It helps get the word out. It's all about audience preservation. That's what we can do as fans is build our own fan base. Again, not a sponsor, but if you want to go to ko-fi.com slash benmodell, buy me a cup of joe. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. And playing us out is the last few minutes of my live score at MoMA for John Ford's The Shamrock Handicap. I'll see you at the silence. So long. <laughs>